Welcome and thank you for listening to this podcast from Court and Independent Medical Education. In this episode, you will hear from internationally renowned hepatologist Dr. Emma Kulver of the John Radcliffe Hospital and the University of Oxford and Professor Gideon Hirschfield of the University of Toronto discussing the latest data on primary biliary cholangitis from ESL 2023. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and, and is supported by an independent educational brand from Ipsen. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations. For disclosure of any conflicts of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. So welcome and thank you for joining us to discuss the PBC highlights from ESL 2023. I'm Emma Culver, consultant hepatologist from the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford in the UK. I'm Gideon Hirschford. I'm a hepatologist in Toronto, and I'm really pleased to join Emma today to talk about some of the highlights from ESL 2023. So let's get started with our first selection. And that's a Swedish study on the association of PBC with cancer risks and outcomes presented by Axel Wester of the Karolinska Institute. Gideon, can you take us through the study, please? Yeah, of course. There's a frequent question in clinic to ask us beyond PBC, what will happen to me? And in particular, is there an elevated risk of me developing cancer? So what these investigators have done is use a Swedish national register of patients living with PBC. So they're over approximately 17 years. They were able to identify just over 3,000 patients with PBC. And they have a reference population, a comparative population of around 27,000. And the follow-up is on average between five and a half years for the PBC patients and seven years for the control cohort. Now, the patients are on average 64 years old, and obviously the majority of them are female. And I think what this study finds is really two things to my mind. First of all, there is an increased risk of cancer in people living with PBC, but my interpretation of the data is that it's strongly and nearly exclusively linked to hepatic cellular carcinoma. So this is not a surprise. We know that PBC, if treated only with ERSO, will lead to cirrhosis in around 30% of patients, although we hope in the future the rate of cirrhosis will go down. And we know that cirrhosis is the leading risk factor for HCC across all diseases. So this was an important observation, although I would just put it into context that the rate of HCC is likely to be falling. They looked at other non-HCC cancers, and they did report some increase in cancers, particularly around GI and lymphoma. This small increase was not so much that I was particularly worried. It seemed to link to possibly colon cancer and possibly some other GI cancers and lymphoma. Now, of course, our patients can get Sjogren's, and this study can't work that one out. So Sjogren's is associated with lymphoma. Our patients can have celiac disease, and celiac disease is associated with more GI cancers. So there was a small increase in some of these non-HCC cancers. But my take-homes, Emma, was that this is a big study, that it confirms that PBC is an important liver disease, and development of cirrhosis is what we're trying to prevent. And one of the complications of cirrhosis is hepatocellular carcinoma, and that is increased in patients living with PBC. But I wouldn't use the study to change my practice as such, other than to say it reinforces the goals of being a hepatologist, which are the prevention of end-stage liver disease. Yeah, thanks, Gideon. I think that's a lovely summary. And I think it does highlight the main points. I guess, for me, I kind of went away thinking about, so, you know, should I be screening 
all of my patients, irrespective of cirrhosis for hepatocellular carcinoma, because I didn't feel like there was data to say it was just those patients who got cirrhosis who got hepatocellular carcinoma. And we know some from some earlier studies, including some from Palak Trivedi, and I think yourself, suggesting that actually in those patients who don't respond, so for example, men who are non-responders and who are non-cirrhotic, there's an increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. And obviously in females with cirrhosis, but also female non-responders as well without cirrhosis. So I think it went away with me thinking about whether or not we should just be looking at those with cirrhosis in terms of cancer risk and also those who are non-cirrhotic who are not responding. What do you think? Do you think that would change the way that you would practice in terms of surveillance? So the truth is I didn't see this as changing how I practice. Already I screen essentially only patients with cirrhosis and even that I recognise in PBC may not meet the threshold for other kind of cancer surveillance. I think this is one of the challenges. I'm, I'm not a stats man, as you know, but yes, they can show an incredibly high hazard ratio for HCC compared to completely healthy people. But what does that mean about absolute risks? And what does that mean about a stratified population? These are predominantly women who already have less metabolic risks and lower rates of HCC and should in now and in the future have very effective treatments for their PBC. So my take home is that I, I'm not going to change my practice. I'm not going to look more than I look already. I'm going to survey those patients who have overt cirrhosis. And in that group of patients, perfectly reasonable to do an ultrasound every six months. And if you wish to do an AFP, then I think when we were trying to find a time to meet in your busy schedule, you were telling me that, you know, you're coming from your one of your HCC meetings. And I genuinely don't believe in your professional experience that PBC is a big contributor to your HCC meetings on a weekly basis. No, no, I think you're right entirely. We don't see so much HCC and PBC and the overall group of HCC individuals we see with viral and NAFLD and other etiologies being more predominant. And I think in terms of screening, you know, you have to have something that's cost effective without increased risk of complications and with good evidence of benefit down the line. And that this data, you know, is great, but it hasn't quite met that yet. Can I ask just one last question in the cancer field? So I was quite surprised, or maybe not, obviously, when we think about the different kinds of cancers, obviously, we know that PSC is associated with cholangiocarcinoma, and there was some nice work on the next day that was presented, looking at kind of biomarkers to detect cholangiocarcinoma in the context of PSC. Obviously, PBC didn't associate at all with cholangiocarcinoma. Were you surprised about that? Or do you think there was a logical explanation for that? Uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, the, the cholangiocarcinoma is, is rising. Intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is associated with cirrhosis, but largely that rise has been seen in viral and fatty liver disease. I'm not surprised because actually the biliary epithelium is so different. And whilst we don't understand, PSC is a large bile duct disease, PBC is a small bile duct disease. And something about the mucosal surfaces is relevant to cancer generation. And there's been some biology looked into that. We haven't solved it by any means, but it didn't surprise me. Yes, do my patients have overlap with fatty liver disease and metabolic syndrome? Of course they do. Will we therefore see incidental associations? Naturally, we will. You know, this obesity is, is going to be such a big impact on all of our practice. But fundamentally, biologically, these are very distinct diseases. And remember, genetics has always told us that they're distinct diseases. And genetics hasn't helped us to understand why one's small bile duct and one's large bile duct. And I imagine that's got more to do with local mucosal immune responses between the two processes. But I think that was a great discussion. So the other abstract, which really was people were waiting for, let's just change sort of tax slightly, still on PBC, very important disease, common rare. 
But this is an abstract about how do we actually use the tools in our clinic about prognosis, the prognostic significance of liver stiffness progression in primary biliary cholangitis. This was a, an abstract presented by Christophe Corpichot on behalf of the Global PBC Study Group. Can you summarize what you took away from Dr. Corpichot's presentation around liver stiffness progression in PBC? Yeah, thanks, Gideon. The background to this very much is that PBC, we know, is a chronic liver disease with an increased risk of complications, transplantation and death. And whilst we've known for some time about the prognostic value of point measurements of liver stiffness in PBC, what we didn't know anything about was the relationship over a period of time with regards to outcome and occurrence of serious clinical events. And I suppose that was the real aim of this study, to look over it longitudinally in what was a really huge international retrospective cohort. There were 24 centres, 13 different countries represented. And I think in total, actually, they looked at about 2,200 patients. And those patients that were included were those who had compensated PBC, who were on acid acid, and they had to have at least one reliable fibre scan measurement with a follow-up of at least 12 months. And they got rid of those patients who had overlap, those who went on to second line therapy, even though they included that in a sub-analysis, and also those patients who had unreliable liver stiffness measurements. With the primary outcome really being looking to see whether or not you develop these serious clinical events and over what time that actually occurred. So if you actually look at the, the data and what they included, most of them, again, were females of the, of the age of mean of about 60 25% had advanced liver disease, which they defined as a liver stiffness of greater than 10. And the follow-up period was okay. It was around about four years. And at least the median number of fibre scans was around about three and an interval of around two years between scans. So, you know, they did cover that really well. And that primary outcome was met in 10% of patients. So 10% had a significant clinical event. And I think the real thing that we took from this was that actually any increase of liver stiffness measurement over time was associated with an increased risk of a clinical event. And that initial increased risk was actually independent of initial age, of biochemical markers, or of response to acidioxycholic acid. And if you turn that on its head, therefore actually decreases in liver stiffness actually is associated with improved prognosis. There was a link that they described between initial liver stiffness measurement and liver stiffness measurement over time particularly in those patients who are less than 45 years old and in those who had an inadequate response to acidioxycholic acid. I think this is a really important study with the key messages that actually this is, you know, a true value that can be used not only for clinical trials and research, but actually in clinical practice. What did you think? No, I, I agree. And, you know, I thought it was a very impactful study because we're looking for better ways to understand our patients' journeys better ways to look for which patients benefit from treatment, better ways to look at what treatments are demonstrating benefit beyond just using biochemistry. So I think it meets all of those aspects. I suppose what I'm interested to know is, will it change your practice? I don't know how easy it is for your real population of patients to get their fibre scan. So what do you think the impact is for, on your day-to-day -day practice? Now, I think we moved a number of years ago, actually, to try and at least in the John Radcliffe Hospital to do annual fibre scans of our PBC patients. I guess you're right in the slightly more district hospitals and peripheral hospitals, that's not always feasible. And it was interesting to see, obviously, there was the mean interval here of two years between scans. So, you know, this was found at various different time points. So it's not maybe necessary that you have to do an annual fibre scan, even though obviously the annual fibre scan will probably give you, you know, the better detail. 
But I think it will start to give people an idea that actually whenever they do do that fibre scan, they can start to prognosticate, they can start to think about how this might affect their patients, and they can start to potentially personalise things and get them into trials in the longer term. No, no, I agree. And I mean, and I, I think also we'll be looking to see our second line therapies are over time. I'm not sure you can expect Fibroscan to go down immediately, you give a new drug, but over time to stabilize and to stay in certain risk categories. And I think what I would say is that how I use Fibroscan is very different to how it's been promoted in the community. I look at trends. I look at broad risk categorization. I don't think about absolute numbers. I realize that there's a real push to have a number and a cutoff. But I'm looking at, is it low, medium or high risk? I'm looking at, is it stable over time? And I think that's important in how I um, interpret the information. The other little sort of nuance is rising use of shear wave elastography. It may mean that it's got better access because lots of, or if all ultrasound machines can do a shear wave, that means where patients live and they're having their ultrasound will have that shear wave information. And I have nothing to believe it wouldn't give the same information. Also, you know, ultimately, like you said, you want to individualize care. I don't think it's bad care if you don't do it every year. And that's important to also get the message out there. And you're going to look at this result and you're going to look at their biochemistry and you look at their symptoms for people living with PBC. And that's how you're going to choose your second and third line treatments. What will also be helpful is to, to factor in the CAP score, which gives you some idea of fatty liver. And again, that, that's that individualization process for trying to ultimately do everything we can to prevent progression to end-stage liver disease. And, and I think you define a really important point there with regards to the CAP score as well, because I do think it has to be used in association with it, given the overlap that we know that's occurring with metabolic-related liver diseases. And one last comment is, although this is, there's a little bit of discussion amongst people interested in managing PBC, what, what this data doesn't really help you with is how to use the first Fibroscan value. Now, I am sure that Fibroscan is always prognostic, but in practice... It's much better to, to start your clock one year after treating with UDCA because that's the time you have the biggest drop in liver stiffness from ameliorating the cholestatic component of the disease. So liver stiffness will measure inflammation, cholestasis, and fibrosis. As you ameliorate that with anti-cholestatic therapies, you would expect that to drop in the first you know, six to 12 months. And that's not because you've got rid of fibrosis. It's because you've dealt with some of the, the cholestasis associated liver stiffness. So I do try and counsel my patients to wait until the second reading to give them a better idea. Now, clearly, if your fibro scans in the 20s, but this is the patients who present with fibro scans between five to 10, and um, where I don't want them to go away unnecessarily thinking that we are on a pathway to more complications. Yeah, really important points. So I think that brings us nicely onto our final two selections, which are really focused on sort of second line therapy. And in the first of these, there's an interim biomarker data from multi-centered randomized control trial, which was presented from Frederick Nevens and Leuven in Belgium. And, and I wonder, Gideon, if you could talk us through what is what, you know, was a long awaited, but really kind of excellent study. No, and I think this is a really a nice study for you to have chosen to discuss, because in practice, we have seen second line therapy. We have one conditionally approved drug, a beta cholic acid. And in many parts of the world, there's off-label use of, of bezofibrate. And at the same time, we know that there are significant phase three clinical trials of new drugs that target PPARs, DELPARs, and drugs that have alpha and delta activity. In this study, what we're now looking at is an extension of clinical practice. 
So we are looking at industry-sponsored study from Intercept, where they are making a combined therapy of abetacolic acid with bezofibrate. Highly logical, synergistic biology, FXR and PPAR. And clearly from a patient perspective, the idea that you've got one tablet rather than two starts to be you know, of interest in when you're adding on therapy. And it's also logical because it builds on what we're doing already. 11% of my clinic of the last 450 patients that I looked after are already taking OCA and bezofibrate together. So having some randomized controlled data where the investigators have compared different doses of bezofibrate against combination therapies is very impactful and very interesting. And this interim analysis is of a population of PBC, 75% of whom have got an ELTFOS greater than 1.67, who are randomized into four arms, bezofibrate 200, bezofibrate 400, OCA 5 to 10 plus bezofibrate 200, OCA 5 to 10 plus bezofibrate 400. We didn't get all of the nuances of the data. You never do in one of these oral sessions. There's only the 62 patients in this analysis, but they look like patients who need second-line treatment. Their ELTFOSs are somewhere between 250 to 320 with a reasonable range. And as I said, 75% of them have got an ELTFOS greater than 1.67, that magic Toronto number that has um, been adapted into practice saying, you know, we need second-line treatment. And the difference here in the study is that previously we looked at an endpoint where we dropped the ELTFOS less than 1.67, kept the bilirubin normal, and saw a 15% decline between two readings. Where are we now? We are looking at normalization of alkaline phosphatase. Why are we doing that? Because data from the global PPC study group says, if your tests are normal, you do the best. Normal ELTFOS, normal bilirubin. This is not rocket science, Emma. This is just what we do in other liver disease. But normalization is the new target. And in this interim analysis, short-term treatment, albeit, but within week 12, there are reporting that in the arm with bezofibrate 400 and OCA 5 to 10, that they're up to 58% of, of normalization. Now, that's great. This really confirms what we're doing in practice. It tells us that we're moving the field forward. What are my caveats? Well, normalization is always relative to where you started. And that's obviously the same for everyone doing these kind of studies. So it does depend on how high your ELTFOS is. And also this is at 12 weeks and we don't know, you know, ELTFOS does continue to drop a bit over time. But regardless, this is really exciting. A combination therapy with two drugs which are synergistic in one tablet where we can see rapid improvements in liver tests by week 12 is very, very exciting and is moving the field of PVC into a new era if this can be shown to be safe over the long term and we can see what the optimized dose is. Adverse events are very important. One of the Achilles heels of abeticolic acid is pruritus. One of the opportunities of bezofibrate and new therapies that are coming, other PPARs, is their predicted antipruritic effect. And this was clearly demonstrated again in the study although I'm not sure we saw the exact itch scores, but generally pruritus was not an issue. So this is also something that I think is really appealing. So this was important. It's a hard study to do, to find patients. Yes, they're relatively small numbers, but this is concept generating in terms of randomized data. It's taken our real world experience and it's done it in clinical trials, which is what we need if we're going to have labeled therapies. And it shows that 
bringing together these two um, important pathways therapeutically, um, a better cholic acid and FXR agonist, better fibrate, a pan people agonist, bringing them together into one tablet is an effective way to get rapid, potent, and efficient anticholestatic and anti-inflammatory impacts for our patients, which we predict, but we'll need to prove, will be of benefit to their long-term outcome. And to all the points we mentioned, will, we predict, reduce the chance of cirrhosis and HCC? Will, we predict, change their fibre scan over time? So building on some of the other data. So that was my take. It really is, you know, an excellent study and, and small numbers, as you said. I think, obviously, some of the things that were pointed out immediately after the presentation in the subgroup analysis, the dose overall of ursidioxycholic acid was a little bit lower than we'd expect, definitely not meeting the 13 to 15 milligrams per kilogram. And I do wonder if that's just, you know, data crunching, but obviously that would be a concern if patients weren't on effective or optimal therapy. And maybe some of those patients were not on therapy with ursidioxycholic acid, but that didn't really come out in the presentation. I guess the other thing is, is, you know, I was quite surprised by the low rates of things like myopathy that often we find in patients with fibrates. But I actually think that was probably related to everyone stopping their statin. And I know necessarily in clinical practice, not everyone who goes on a visa fibrate will necessarily stop their statin. So I think that was a little bit of a message to, to me and maybe to others as well, that actually much lower rates of myositis and myopathy described in this small clinical trial with regards to numbers than you necessarily see in clinical practice and no evidence of renal dysfunction either, which was other, you know, another really important take-home message. And actually, if you looked at the kind of LDL and HDL cholesterol levels and the overall cholesterol levels, again, there seems to be a degree of improvement. And I know that, you know, cholesterol and cardiovascular outcomes are not necessarily synergistic in the context of PBC, but I guess that's relatively reassuring for those patients who are having to stop their statin and go on a fibrate. The other thing, I guess, as well, yeah, in that study is they also took out, if I recall from actually doing the study, we actually took out patients who had, you know, gallstones or any um, who'd had a previous cholecystectomy. So, again, I think we're going to have to think about those patient groups that we, you know, we give this combination therapy to in real life. And so that leads the question really about a phase three. Do you think, given the fact that you've commented already that 11 percent of your patients are already on combined therapy, and the challenges that there were being able to recruit to this study, that it would be possible to do a phase three combination day study, given the way that actually we may incorporate this in clinical practice? I think the answer is yes. Nothing's easy in clinical trials, whatever disease you work on. But you know what we're trying to do here is think about the global management of PPC for everyone with PPC, regardless of where they live, and to increase the uniformity of care. And labelled therapy increases the uniformity of care. Not everyone gets a chance to go to a clinic where someone is really focused on PPC and to have a clinician who thinks about all those nuances, the statins, the lipids, the interactions. And that's where we do need licensed therapies. It makes it much more linear. It makes it much more predictable. It makes it much easier to write clear guidelines. So yes, it will be a challenge to recruit and it will have to have global investigators, but it will be a worthwhile effort. And I think we'll ultimately reach our goal, which is to improve liver treatment and to aim for normal tests, not for just suppression. We need to move on to the last abstract, Emma. But this is actually a great abstract to finish this really uh, enjoyable conversation, because this is now trying to help people who are using second-line treatment know whether those second-line treatments are working. And this is the development and validation of a score predicting response to beta-cholic acid in PBC, the OCA response score. And I'd really be interested to know um, this abstract presented by De Vesentis from the Italian group, some of your high-level summaries about this abstract and, and why you thought this was newsworthy. 
Yeah, so I, again, I, I really like this. And actually, I was quite interested in the kind of concept of trying to develop tools to predict treatment response and thinking about actually personalizing treatment strategies, and if indeed that's even possible with the data we have available. And I guess this was data that was extracted from the Italian Recapitulate study, which was presented as a separate oral presentation earlier on in the day. And that's real-world data, retrospective, looking at a beta-colic acid therapy in Italy to look at efficacy and safety in Italy over a good geographical distribution. And in this particular analysis, they were only included if you knew their alkaline phosphatase at the start of OCA treatment, and they had a minimum of six-month observation. They did have to choose their values quite carefully, and they chose their candidate variables, of which there was 12, based on the fact that they had to exclude those with missing variables. So one of the caveats is, is they had to exclude things like platelets or albumin or INR because there were more than 20% of missing values. But they were able to develop a response score and then actually a response score plus using these 12 variables. So the OCR plus, just to mention it, is basically where they find these predictive models and then they added the six-month response of alkaline phosphatase and also bilirubin to that. And their main outcomes were the three outcomes we've been talking about before. One of them being obviously the ideal, which is normalizing the alkaline phosphatase, the ALT and bilirubin. One of them being the, the standard alkaline phosphatase, less than 1.67 times the upper limit of normal. And the other one is the POISE criteria, which was this alkaline phosphatase and also the, the normalized bilirubin. So they created these 12 candidate variables in a study or a group that were mainly females, again, of 60 years, median duration of around about seven years. They didn't exclude their overlap patients. So their overlap patients got included in this, but they had to officially have a stable dose of immunosuppression over six months and be a biopsy diagnosis. And a third of the group were cirrhotic. A third of the group were itching at baseline, and they had 24-month mean follow-up on a beta-colic acid. And I think actually, as we expected in terms of who, how many people met the 12-month outcome, actually in terms of normal range on the beta-colic acid only, that was only 10%. If you use the ALP less than 1.67 times the upper limit of normal, it was 60%. And if you use the POISE criteria, it was around about 40%. But actually, at the end of all of that, they came up with a score and then an advanced score that was able, they felt, to predict those patients who would need second line therapy. Not necessarily predict those patients who wouldn't respond, but predict those patients who would meet um, need for, for a beta-colic acid. And the, the main sort of factors that were included in that were patients' age, their pruritus, which specifically their symptoms, and the biochemical values we know, which is sort of alkaline phosphatase, ALT and the bilirubin. And there was good discriminatory values and there was also good calibration scores. And they say that these scores um, didn't differ based on gender, on cirrhosis, on higher ALP at baseline, even though they did acknowledge there was a small proportion who weren't on acidoxycholic acid and there was a small proportion who went on to fibrates a little bit later in the study. But I think it's quite nice to have a baseline score that you could potentially use. And I guess the real question is, is, you know, would you use this in clinical practice? Good question. I mean, I don't actually see much clinical utility in this. What I think it's relevant just conceptually is that we do need better understanding of who responds to what. And, and when I was see, sitting in the audience thinking, you know, I don't always know why one person responds to OCA more than fibrate and the other person seems more fibrate sensitive. 
um, and less OCA. And that's relevant, you know, when I'm trying to understand mechanisms and synergy in the context of joining drugs together. I think this is a bit self-fulfilling, if I'm honest. And I couldn't quite immediately see how I would use it until it's been validated a bit more. But it's important to do because we do need to tease away at who responds and why so that we can more effectively use treatments. And this will become more relevant when we are our choice of therapies is improved in the coming years to have a family of second-line treatments which have got conditional approval and, and which reach towards our goal of, of normalizing tests and in improving symptoms. But we may need to just draw this really exciting discussion to an end, Emma, and I might just ask you to start just a, a cup, one minute of summarising your take on EASL 2023. I think it was an excellent conference, and I think I started this by saying that I guess the kind of key things that I have taken from this is firstly that we really should be starting to look towards normalising alkaline phosphatase and not necessarily settling for a higher alkalized phosphatase. I suppose it depends on the group of patients that you choose to do that or whether that should be everyone in the system that we have currently. And also that we should be thinking about how we get and move forward with regards to our second line therapies, our clinical trials that will help to actually look prognostically at fibrosis markers, not just necessarily biochemical response and serious clinical events of which we really care about in these groups of patients. And lastly, how we can incorporate liver stiffness into this. How about you? What are your key take home messages? I agree totally. I think you've summarised it really well. It was a great conference. We got the momentum going for PBC and other autoimmune liver diseases. But what's even more exciting, if you think about ASLD 2023 in November in Boston, we predict from what we heard that there will be two phase three clinical trials presented on the future treatments of PBC, which is staggering when you think about it, to be hoping to hear for our patients and our colleagues you know, phase three data of new molecules being developed for PBC. So I think there's more excitement coming. So Emma, it was really a great pleasure as ever to chat to you and to record this podcast. And I hope people find it interesting. Uh, thank you. And I hope everyone has a good day. We hope you found this podcast episode enjoyable and informative. If you liked this episode, please look on the Core to Add Medical Education channel for more. In particular, look out for the other episode in this series where primary biliary cholangitis experts Robert Mitchell Thain, CEO of the patient advocacy organization PBC Foundation, and Kath Houghton, a specialist nurse at Newcastle-upon-Tyne Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, explore the data presented at this year's ESL 2023. In addition, please consider exploring the PBC highlights from last year's ILC conference covered in two podcast episodes with Professor Gideon Hirschfield and Professor Anna Yeo, as well as Professor Chris Cowardly and Professor Jörn Schattenberg. Also, please don't forget to rate this episode on your podcast platform or the core to add website and share our podcast on social media or with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and see you next time.